You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Hello, and welcome to Law, Life, and Culture on 103.5 FM in New Haven. I'm Betsy Kim. Camille Seabury is one of New Haven's unsung heroes. She's a research associate at Data Haven, a nonprofit group that collects, interprets, and shares public data. The organization's mission is to enable effective decision-making to improve the quality of life in New Haven and in Connecticut. Camille received her bachelor's degree of science in physics from Yale University and is currently enrolled in the Data Science Certificate Graduate Program at Harvard University Extension School. So she's definitely a person who doesn't fear but loves numbers. Welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Hey, thanks for having me. So most people want to see improvements in society, in healthcare, education, the economy, and injustice and equality. But just like science should guide decisions about the environment and climate change, so should facts and figures support policy decisions that affect people's lives. Is that the underlying premise of the work of Data Heaven? Um, yeah, I think so. I think uh, a lot of what we try to do is make data useful for people. So not just policymakers, but for residents as well, for community groups, um, really for anybody to figure out ways to create change, drive change um, within our region, basically. In one uh, instance of trying to create change, one cannot say, for example, I'm sick and tired of this political leader making horrendous decisions and policies that are hurting people. That's not going to be an effective route to accomplish anything, to logically persuade people to vote in an informed way, to get organizations or governmental bodies with institutional authority to make change. How do you instead use numbers and what do you do to bring about change? So I think the past year and a half has actually done the opposite of what we might think with that. Right. So we saw um, with the presidential election, but also like around social media and everything, uh, people saying this thing is horrible. Right. Calling things a disaster. Um, not necessarily having like the evidence for that, maybe not having the numbers to show that, um, but just saying it and having that be kind of good enough because that like pulls people's emotions in a way that numbers a lot of times don't. So I think that that's kind of the, uh, I think that kind of people who work with data on a daily basis need to, and who are kind of proponents of working with data, need to figure out how can we maybe reconfigure what we do because I think that that, didn't work right that um and that it's not necessarily compelling to say like oh i've got this stack of evidence about this thing in a way that somebody saying this was a disaster does compel people well, that's an interesting point do you have any thoughts on how you would rejigger things to use data more effectively um i don't know i think that that's like a that's an ongoing discussion right now within um like among like open data organizations, among um, groups that are organizations that are similar to Data Haven. I was just at a conference of um, a bunch of organizations that are similar to ours. And that was something that was coming up a lot was like that people aren't necessarily compelled by just here's, you know, a list of facts or here's a list of numbers. Um, if that's not what, 
they're seeing or what they're feeling or um, if somebody's telling them something that, you know, isn't necessarily uh, backed up by numbers. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's kind of we need to figure that out uh, how to do things like that better. Yeah. And that's a challenge. Yeah, because that's a shame. That's unfortunate that people aren't listening to facts, but seem to be following emotional or sensational type of information. Yeah, yeah. Or I don't even know if that word is information, but uh, dialogue. Yeah. So let's focus on this year's Data Haven story on health equity, which you and Data Haven Executive Director Mark Abraham authored in a March 1st, 2017 New Haven Independent article titled New Haven Gets a Health Data Checkup. What was the most significant finding that you wanted to convey in that article? Um, yeah, so I guess just a little bit about the article that we wrote. So it was about um, this project, the 500 Cities Project. It's from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the CDC. Um, and so they have uh, data on 28 different public health measures by census tract for the 500 largest cities in the country. So, and that's uh, right around a third of the country's population lives in those 500 cities. Um, so included within that, there's eight cities in Connecticut. Um, New Haven is one of those. And so we were looking at the data first for all the Connecticut cities. <coughs> and then um, just trying to figure out what, you know, what kind of, patterns we were seeing what were the differences on different health measures how does uh cities in connecticut how do those compare to cities around the country um and so the main thing that we were starting to see was that on a lot of a lot of the health measures there was like a huge uh variability just among those the tracks within those eight um those eight cities i think it was something around 200 tracks and so a census tract is interesting because it's um, pretty small. A lot of times they're kind of comparable to a neighborhood within a city or a lot of the neighborhoods within New Haven are made up of kind of two or maybe three census tracts. Um, so it's it's a pretty local group of people or a pretty local geography that you're looking at. So um, just the amount of variance that we were seeing on a lot of measures. Um, some of the measures we had... Uh, Cities within Connecticut, like maybe on one measure, there might be cities within Connecticut that were ranked among the, you know, top 10th of whatever measure for the entire country. And also tracks within Connecticut that were ranked in the bottom 10th across the entire country. So there was just this really wide range on a lot of things. Okay. You know, you referenced the larger Data Haven report merging 500 cities and Connecticut data on health equity understanding health and well-being neighborhood by neighborhood. And I found some found findings about New Haven in that report particularly striking. You reported that compared to the other large Connecticut cities, overall, New Haveners have a less favorable rating of our parks and police, are more skeptical of our residents' abilities to get a job, feel less safe walking at night, and are less likely to think our neighborhoods are good places to raise children. Yet we are largely content. 78% of New Haven adults surveyed are satisfied with living here. 
um, and that was higher than 75% of the other cities in Connecticut. How do you explain these results and what do they mean? Um, I'm not really sure, honestly, because that's the sort of thing where uh, you have. Yeah, so there, so that comes from Data Haven's uh, Community Wellbeing Survey. Um, and so we looked at survey results for those cities and then for specifically for New Haven. Um, and yeah, so we were finding that New Haven residents gave lower ratings to some of those sorts of things that you mentioned, uh, but then had this relatively high satisfaction rating. Um, so, and even when, so part of what we did with the report was we split areas into uh, being higher need or lower need. So based on um, population density, poverty rate, and median household income. And so even within New Haven, even the higher need areas had relatively high satisfaction ratings. Um, so yeah, what causes that? I don't really know because this is the sort of data where like we're looking for patterns, but not necessarily, you know, we can't necessarily do like a cause and effect. But um, I, I think that that's the sort of thing where within New Haven, we can then start to think about like, well, what works? What's happening that there's, you know, there's some sort of resilience, there's some sort of community pride, something that's making making it so that even when we have, like, even when neighborhoods have some sort of adversity that they're facing or feel frustrated with, like, city services, that overall something is still making people say, like, you know, I enjoy living here, I care about my neighborhood, things like that. Yeah, maybe kind of wonder, we're relatively happy, but we like to complain? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... The 500 Cities Report, as you referenced earlier, compiled by the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, that report included Connecticut's eight largest cities, New Haven, Bridgeport, Danbury, Hartford, New Britain, Norwalk, Stanford, and Waterbury. Now, Data Haven, I understand, analyzed and extrapolated from that 500 Cities Report data to make the New Haven information uh, more data accessible. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So the project, uh, what they did was they, uh, so the data is actually estimates. Um, so they used this modeling technique that I don't know the ins and outs of their methodology. Um, but so their estimates of the rates for all of those 28 measures for all of those census tracts. Um, and then they put it, it's all online. So they have an open data portal for it. Um, so you can go online. You can, I think it's 500cities.com or .org. Um, and so you can download all the data. It's, you know, 100 megabytes of just numbers. But uh, you can download the whole thing there. Um, and so, yeah, so then we split out the Connecticut tracts um, and just looked at it like that. We did do some comparing um, not so much in the article, but we did do a little bit of comparing uh, average rates of different things for the Connecticut cities versus for uh, averages for the entire country. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to recap a little bit of that just to make sure I understand <laughs> what's going on as well as our listeners. But reading from your online report, the CDC Robert Woods Johnson 500 Cities Report was launched in December 2016, mm -hmm. and it factored in 28 different health indicators, 
in three measurement categories, preventive health, healthcare outcomes, and unhealthy behaviors for the 500 largest cities in the country, representing 103 million residents, a third of the entire U.S. population. Again, this encompassed Connecticut's eight largest cities, including New Haven. And your report stated that the surveys were not actually given to 103 million respondents, but the information was statistically derived. And that's what you've indicated in this conversation as well, correct? Yeah. So everything um, that they worked with came from uh, the behavioral, I can never remember exactly what it's called, the, the behavioral risk factors survey and another S on there, the BRFSS. Um, so that's administered by every state, um, by like state uh, health departments. It's different. It's done differently in every state, but it's it's like a standard set of questions that states all administer. So it is like a set of um, common measures across the entire country. And so then based on they did uh, they used a modeling technique to estimate the rates for at local levels based on um, a bunch of like demographics information and other information. So it is um, the rates that they give are estimates, but they have like relatively small margins of error. So they're pretty confident in those estimates that they give. I read the report as well as the article in the New Haven Independent. And of course it was unsettling in some ways as no one wants to see such disparities in what people in different income levels experience in life. But in many ways, for me, the conclusions were rather intuitive and not surprising. I suppose I expected that more people in affluent neighborhoods are going to feel their neighborhoods are good places to raise children and will have more visits to the dentist and will have more leisure time. Why is it important to have this actual data and to numerically measure the levels of various experiences in life based on income? Yeah, so this was one of those things where um, what I was really hoping to go in and find was basically absolutely nothing. Like I was really hoping to look at the data and find like, oh, everybody is really healthy and we're all like the same level of really healthy. And like I knew that, you know, that there was a good chance that that wouldn't be what we found. And so we did in fact find these disparities. And so again, we split the tracts as um, higher need and lower need. So we kind of put everything into those two clusters um, and looked at things within those clusters. And so we did have, um, so with a lot of measures, we would have kind of a, when we looked at just all the tracks within Connecticut, we would have kind of a bell curve of things. But then when we split into those two clusters, we would see that there were these kind of two sets of, um, of these health measures, two sets of kind of average rates. So, yeah, but I think it is important still to figure out like where those health, what are the health issues affecting those higher need areas? Um, where are the areas that need more health interventions or better support or um, aren't getting as much preventive care? So, and especially the differences were most pronounced with um, the preventive care measures and the unhealthy behaviors measures and the, less so with the healthy outcomes measures. So that's, again, something where it seems like maybe something is working, that even if you have like a lack of preventive care, um, which right you still want everybody to have good preventive care, but even in places where you're having this lack of some of those preventive care measures, in the end, you still are having decent 
health outcomes. So kind of having that as a means of pinpointing like, okay, something along the way here worked, even if um, you might not assume that you're going to get to that endpoint of, you know, decent health outcomes. You mentioned the um, disparities with the results in the surveys in different communities and different track uh, tracks or um, the different uh, communities within the cities as well as amongst the cities. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else particularly surprising or alarming that you found in your analysis of the data? Um, I think for me, what kind of stood out, and if I were to do a whole nother version of this, I might look instead at um, just the level of variance within some of these. So like I mentioned that some of the measures had... um, tracts that were within you know the best and the worst within the entire country so figuring out kind of what it is that makes makes that happen makes it so that there's so much variation within just eight you know it's not that many people it's not that big of a state and yet we have this huge amount of of variation within a pretty small area you are listening to wnhh 103.5 fm Data Haven Research Associate Camille Seabury is our guest on Law, Life, and Culture. She's one who believes in facts and science, using her college degree in physics from Yale University to statistically help improve the quality of life for people in New Haven and in Connecticut. She's here telling us how. So the number, Camille, in your report shows gaps with high-income and lower-income neighborhoods in indicators of quality of life. A sample of factors include incidents of asthma, dental visits, lack of feeling safe walking at night, obesity, and stroke. What are ways in which this information is used to improve neighborhoods or cities? Um, So I think kind of what's happening on the ground, I'm not sure, but I think that there is a lot of room for... um, you know, maybe organizations that are working on some of those health issues uh, to kind of start pinpointing like, okay, where should we start to focus, right? So what are the, um, which neighborhoods should we focus on? Which neighborhoods are um, most at risk for some of these problems or most in need of preventive care measures? I think it also, um, you know, we talked about that there are these disparities that you kind of expect to see, but just having a little bit more evidence that says like, okay, we're seeing this, you know, real lack of, one of the things where there was a huge gap was dental visits, right? So we're seeing this lack of um, access to dental care in these higher need areas. So maybe that's something that we need to, you know, really, really focus on and really target. Maybe that's something that one city has learned from already. And so they can help out another city with figuring out what worked here, Um, that could work in a, you know, work in New Haven that's worked um, elsewhere. So does Data Haven itself use this information or do you provide it more and make it available so advocacy groups or other organizations can then make use of it? Um, Yeah, so like I said, the data itself is online um, from the 500 Cities Project. Uh, It's not particularly accessible, just having like a huge file like that. and there is some information that they gave, uh, the, the 500 Cities Project gave, they mapped everything, right? So we built our own um, maps of all the Connecticut cities, 
Um, we wanted to have something that was interactive that kind of looked nice. So it might be like a little bit more inviting to um, just kind of look at, mess around with. Um, but yeah, if anybody wanted to know, uh, wanted to learn more about this data or anything else like that, that we work on, we could definitely help you out with it. The, um, the well-being survey data is all online. So we have cross tabs. Um, so tables of all the questions on it, a hundred something questions, uh, broken down by different demographic groups. So by race, age, income level, education level. So yeah, that stuff is online also. What are some examples of groups that have used your data and information? Um, I don't even, like, I don't know which ones to name necessarily. Um, I think that we do try to pair with a lot of organizations. Um, we do a lot of our work through the Community Foundation. Um, so then a lot of the groups that they fund then in turn use um, use our stuff. And that is something that I want to figure out ways for us to do a little bit more of is um, some of that kind of community partnerships. I know Mark does uh, coordinate a lot of that kind of stuff also. I kind of more end up crunching numbers. Um, but I know that he does a lot of that um, also of just like finding partnerships, figuring out who needs kind of who needs help with what, who needs information on what. And we've talked about the health equity report. Just as a example or kind of brainstorming here, how could this report or data haven information be used, for example, with today's ongoing headlines on health care? How could it apply to the Affordable Care Act and the American Health Care Act debates? Um, yeah, so one thing that we saw within the 500 cities data um, is again, the, these problems that we have here with preventive care in those um, higher need communities. And so seeing these like pretty large gaps in um, health insurance coverage. So what's in the 500 cities uh, data comes from 2014 for a lot of those measures and they're supposed to be updated this year, um, but there's a little bit of a lag. So we also asked about health insurance coverage in the um well-being survey and so that's from 2015 so that's a little bit more recent and so at that point more people would have been insured under the ACA and we'll be doing the survey again we do it every three years so we'll be doing it again next year so if people have started losing coverage by next year which hopefully they haven't um, then we might see that next year but I think again it kind of you know looking at numbers like this and looking at it in this way in a way that's uh, very local and focused kind of helps us figure out what people's needs are. So especially with that preventive care um, that, yeah, is in the news as far as just even having access to go to a doctor. And earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned that the data is for everyone, for anyone in the community to make use of. But who would you want to most access your data? Journalists, grant applicants, lawmakers, or are there any targeted groups that you would hope would access the information? Um, I'm kind of always most excited about people who don't fall into any of those categories, having uh, more access to information and especially more access to, um, to data, but also just data literacy in general. Um, so, but it's, it's hard, right? It's hard to make data 
accessible or even interesting. A lot of times, you know, kind of dry. Um, and people don't necessarily know how to work with numbers, work with data, really understand statistics. So I think that that's kind of always a hurdle. Um, and again, like I was saying with, um, with this conversation within kind of the data nerd world about how do we do a better job of these things of putting evidence forward and getting that to be something that people are, you know, moved by, um, in a way that they would otherwise be moved by kind of, uh, slogans or propaganda or whatever. Um, I think that that literacy is really lacking for a lot of people. So I'm going to deviate a little bit from our uh, data conversation and ask a personal question of you, if I may. How did you choose to apply your numerical and scientific capabilities to the work that you do? Um, so I, yeah, so I majored in physics. I had pretty much no intentions of becoming a physicist, uh, but I enjoyed physics. It was uh, something that was really interesting to me. So, and what I really liked about physics is that um, it's kind of almost just like a set of exercises in problem solving and in trying to find explanations for things that are going on around you, right? And so it's, you're doing this sort of modeling and problem solving about stuff that is really cool, right? So you're not just like studying numbers just in the abstract, but you're studying those about something like um, special relativity, which is, is I think at least really cool and really interesting. So, and I think that it's also, I really like the framework that's used a lot in physics, which is basically like, here's this thing that we want to understand and we have no idea how it works. And maybe we'll get to a point of understanding how it works and maybe we won't, but we'll uh, ask a whole bunch of questions and we'll try a whole bunch of stuff and maybe get there. Sometimes I wonder whether it's not us who choose our careers, but our careers who choose us. Do you think your career chose you or how did you choose your career path? Um, yeah, I think I kind of just started figuring out. I don't know that I necessarily like know my career path still, but I think that I um, started just figuring out kind of what are my skills and where can I fit in? And a lot of times where I fit in, um, even outside of like a work context, but just in general is kind of being in maybe behind the scenes, but figuring out like, okay, what are the resources that we can help get together to, you know, work on whatever this thing is or whatever this problem is that needs to be solved or what's, um, what's kind of the evidence behind something? What are the numbers behind something? If there was one thing that you wanted people to really know about Data Haven, what would that be? Um, I think that we want to make numbers really cool. Like I was, like I was saying before that it's not, you know, that people aren't moved by it. I think that we, that that's something that we really care about is making, uh, making that sort of numbers really cool and really powerful, um, and really, uh, compelling to people. Well, thank you very much, Data Haven Research Associate Camille Seabury. It was a pleasure speaking with you on our program. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, you can learn more about Data Haven, its health equity report, and the work that they do by checking out their website, ctdatahaven.org. 
And thank you for joining us on Law, Life, and Culture. I'm Betsy Kim.